This is What Are You Looking At? and I'm your host, Lisa Campbell-Smith. In our first episode of Season 5, Australian artist Luisa Bufadici speaks about the ways in which data and coding have played a part in her practice and directly informed the artwork, Ethnicities to Nations. Currently showing at Contemporary Art Tasmania as part of the group exhibition, Unspoken Brawl. Alongside Australian and international artists Archie Barry, Liam James, Annika Koops, Rowie Rosen and Artur Szymierski. Curated by independent curator Stevie S. Han, the exhibition poses the question, how do we see ourselves through the eyes of others? And how do we navigate and reconcile conflicting political and cultural views in the public sphere? So I first became interested in data in the late 90s. It was probably 99 when I was called on to do a survey for the Australian Bureau of Statistics. So at the time, the Australian Bureau of Statistics would call random citizens to participate in these surveys. I think now they're done online. The one that I was called upon to do was about income and employment. So the gentleman, whose name was Frank, I'll never forget that, would ask me a bunch of questions and, uh, you know, it probably took about 10 minutes and then he would call again the following month and I think a third month as well just to collect these statistics on how much work I was doing and how much I was earning. So in 1999, I had graduated with my bachelor's degree in fine art, so I was practicing as an artist. I had a studio at Gertrude Street, so I was in a very active community of practicing artists. And I was also uh, volunteering at another gallery, and I was working in some evenings um, at a restaurant behind the bar, so I was in working in hospitality and I was also uh, doing a little bit of teaching at that point as well. So I was hoping to transition from working in hospitality to working more in teaching. But I still had, you know, was working in both of those areas just because this was a time of transition. And I was also babysitting my nephew uh, one day a week as well. Um, so I had a lot of things going on and I was um, living in a share house so the rent was fairly low. So I'm telling you all of this in order to give you a bit of a picture of where I was at when I received this phone call from Frank from the Australian Bureau of Statistics. So one of the questions that Frank asked me was uh, how many hours did you work this week? And so I would tally up all these activities that I was doing. And of course, I included any volunteering work as work because that's, you know, it certainly was work. And um, all my, all the time I was working as an artist, I was including that as work as well. And it ended up to be about 80 hours a week. And then he would ask me, so how much did you earn and I'd say well you know I probably earned around two hundred dollars because you know working the few hours that I was doing in hospitality and 
the few hours that I was doing in teaching didn't add up to a great deal of money for me at that point and everything else I wasn't being paid for. But because I was living so cheaply, I didn't need to earn a lot of money at that time. So um, Frank was taken aback by this amount of money and this low amount of money that I was earning. And he... And he's look, you know, obviously had a form in front of him and was ticking boxes as I was talking. And he said to me, "Oh, love, I don't have a box for that," because there was no correlation for him between working so many hours and earning so little. So, so it really made an impression on me the the fact that he couldn't submit my responses because they were outside of the standard model, I guess. He seemed to think that if I was earning such little money, I would have to be be working fewer hours. Or if I was working so many hours, then I would have to be earning much more money. So there needed to be a more normal, I guess, relationship between the hours I was working and the amount of money that I was getting. Anyway, so we had this discussion about how he should compromise my data in order to fill in the form that was in front of him. He was just a volunteer, I'm sure, himself, or um, possibly, or some, you know, just someone who was working there with no authority. So I think we ended up deciding on something like $400 and 40 hours a week, so something really kind of very normal and so this this situation really disturbed me I was um, you know disturbed by the fact that I knew I wasn't unique in in this situation I know I knew a lot of my peers who were working really hard at their practices and um, you know doing voluntary work at galleries and you know doing part-time jobs on the side just to pay the rent and um, you know we're putting in the hours and just surviving on very little and I was worried about the fact that this was the Australian Bureau of Statistics whose information tends to guide policy Um, so I was concerned about the policies that would be put in place based on the data that was coming out of this particular survey which to me just did not seem to Uh, embrace all possible income and uh, employment combinations obviously. So this experience had me thinking about how statistics work and who they represent and how they're collected and and uh, it eventually came into my artwork. I think in 1999 I did my first work using statistics that I had sourced from various censors um, that had been taken in Australia. And at first it was really quite fun and light-hearted, but then I was becoming very attuned to the way statistics was being used to talk about um, situations that were 
more delicate and uh, complicated and complex but still being represented with sets of numbers so for example I did a piece that looked at the use of statistics in the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody that, or that was published in the early 1990s. And then as I continued to make work using statistics and was always looking for new sources, I eventually stumbled across the, the American CIA's World Factbook, which was stored online and included statistics from practically every country in the world. And it, was, it had quite a substantial amount of information uh, across all nations and it looked really fun and and interesting and amazing and i think the some of the statistics that it has there that relate to people in particular is quite phenomenal and particularly the statistics on ethnic group which is the source for the ethnicities in the in the piece that's in the gallery ethnicities to nations the interesting thing about the CIA Factbook is that the CIA doesn't collect the data themselves. What they do is they collect the data from every individual country, so every country is represented in the way that it wants to be represented. There's no sort of interference by the CIA. So in every listing of ethnicities, it is according to how that nation one assumes wants to be understood or wants to be seen um, in a global context. And I think this is really interesting in the case for Australia whose information for this particular section of the fact book has changed over the last 15 years. When I first started using the CIA fact book, uh, Australia represented its ethnicities in three terms. There's Caucasian, 92%, Asian, 7%, and Aboriginal and Other, which is one group, and that's at 1%. This was the case um, from at least 2000 until 2006. This is how Australia represented the ethnicities in Australia to the rest of the world through the CIA Factbook. Perhaps because the word Caucasian was becoming a little bit unfashionable, the label was changed to white in 2007. So from 2007 until 2014, the statistics were represented by the terms white, Asian and Aboriginal and other. So while the numbers stayed the same, just the labels changed. And then in 2015, up until the present day, there was a much more complex breakdown of ethnicities under this heading of ethnic groups for Australia. So um, I'm going to read them out. So they went from being white, Asian, Aboriginal and other to English, Australian, Irish, Scottish, Italian, German, Chinese, Indian, Greek, Dutch, other... Uh, which in brackets uh, says it includes Australian Aboriginal at 0.5%. And then uh, there's the group unspecified. And there's a note now that says that the data represents self-identified ancestry. Over a third of respondents reported two ancestries. Um, 
So that's coming out of the 2011 census. Um, another thought about this larger breakdown or more complex breakdown of ethnicities, such as they are, is how that functions politically because we can see that once populations are broken down into smaller groups they become less powerful um, politically and so I can only wonder if this was part of uh, you know if this was a conscious political strategy to break down the ethnicities further or is it part of an intention to to better represent the way people understand themselves to be? I'm not sure. I think it's really interesting. And anyway, that's just Australia. So every country describes ethnicities in very unique ways. Some seem to really struggle with understanding the makeup of their populations. Understandably, because in a globalised world, of course, there's never going it's never going to be clear what people's ethnicity is it, it makes the idea of ethnicity something that is uncountable that doesn't belong in a fact book something that is outside of statistics and this is really evident in the words that not just Australia uses but you know all other countries use words like mixed or uh, non-citizens, non-declareds, non-stateds, persons of dual nationality. Again, that's a term that relates more to nationality than ethnicity, however. But then there's also undeclareds and unidentifieds, unknowns, and the logical unspecifieds. And then there's some that just have none as a, as a describer for ethnicity, no ethnicity. Mm. So I hope you can see why I was so interested in working with this information. When I first made the piece Ethnicities to Nations in 2000, there was a lot of talk about globalisation and it seemed to me a real indicator of how globalisation was changing the way we were understanding ourselves, I guess. And so I was compelled to make a piece about migration and about the movement of, of ethnicities around the world and how difficult it was to kind of mark those ethnicities um, with specific words even as the migrations developed new combinations of ethnicities, of course. So I was thinking just to speak now about the actual work, Ethnicities to Nations, which I haven't even described yet. It's a scrolling LED piece. And so it's a sign like you might see with a new sticker, perhaps. Sometimes you see them on the top of buildings. They're often part of the image we have of Times Square in New York City with the news flashing across these scrolling uh, LED signs. I think there was one in Fed Square in Melbourne for a while, but I can't remember if it's still there now. However, this piece, you know, as it is today in the exhibition, is about one and a half metres wide, so it's not terribly big. And what I've done is I've 
I've suggested that every ethnicity go to every nation. So I built an algorithm that put every ethnicity listed in the CIA fact book from every single country going to every single nation. So the 2018 edition of the CIA World Fact Book has 831 different ethnicities listed for 236 different countries. So I could make these statements whereby every ethnicity went to every country and I'll just read the first couple so you know what I mean. Achenese to Afghanistan, Acholis to Albania, Adjars to Algeria, Afars to American Samoa, African British to Andorra, and so on. So the piece scrolls through, eventually every ethnicity goes to every nation. So there are 196,116 different combinations and it takes about eight and a half hours to scroll through all the statements. I really like this piece. I think it's funny and fun and imaginative and inspiring. I really enjoy thinking about this one and I've really enjoyed making it again for this exhibition. It's been a real pleasure to revisit. I like the way it reflects on how we see ourselves, and how we identify ourselves. I think if someone asked me what my ethnicity was, I wouldn't be able to answer. I don't I don't feel like I know what that is. I you know, my father came from Italy but and my mother came from Australia. So but that's the nationality of my parents and not necessarily my ethnicity. So I feel like it's too nebulous, it's too, I don't know, too constructed and a concept to, to be genuinely indicative of a person's identity, I think. I think identities are, are more than the concept of ethnicity. It has a racist overtone because I think the idea is that white western people don't have an ethnicity but black and brown people from other parts of the world have ethnicity. <laughs> I don't think I could say of myself that I belong to the Italo-Australian community for example. If I belong to a community it's probably the community of struggling artists and I'm not sure that that would be listed as an ethnicity necessarily. You have been listening to What Are You Looking At? The Contemporary Art Tasmania podcast, produced by Pip Stafford and myself, Lisa Campbell-Smith. We would like to give special thanks to artist Louisa Buffadici for her words, curator Stevie S. Hand for her support, and Brendan Walls for providing the original soundtrack. What Are You Looking At? can be found at contemporaryarttasmania.org, iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your podcast. Unspoken Rule currently showing at Contemporary Art Tasmania finishes Sunday, February the 24th.